Well, thank you very much for your welcome. Very pleased to be uh, here with my wife, Bert Ling, and uh, it, we've known about Lifeline for a long time now, but uh, it's the first time we've had the chance to be with you and join you for worship and find out what the, uh, the church is really like. So thank you for having us along. Um, Ling and I have been members for almost 40 years now of Plasto Christian Fellowship, which I think has an outlook rather like Lifelines, but we're much, much smaller. Um, you've got the corner coffee shop, which Daniel took us along to a few weeks ago. We have Cornerstone Coffee Shop. Oh, sorry. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Some of you, I think, know Terry Diggins, who was our uh, long-time pastor. Our church uh, emerged from the work of a mission team in Plasto, in the mid-late 1970s. I joined straight from university in 1978. Ling was already um, a member. And then uh, 32 years ago, I was elected a member of Newham Council. Um, And I remember I'd been doing that for a few years, and every now and then people would ring up to ask my help with a problem of some sort. And Uh, people from Little Ilford Ward, which was where I was representing, and somebody rang up from miles away from there, uh, somebody I didn't know, and she said, um, I've got a problem. Uh, There's lots of rubbish in my back garden. Can you do something about it? I didn't quite understand, I mean, why was she ringing me? Because, I mean, I wasn't her local councillor. I mean, I didn't want to be rude, but I just sort of discreetly tried politely to ask why she was bringing me to help with this and um, oh she said um, well you're always in the Newham recorder talking a lot of rubbish I thought you were the ideal person to... <laughs> there we go <clears throat> anyway I'll try and do a bit better this morning um, but I, I want to take as my starting point the opening of Paul's letter that John uh, read to us to uh, the new ch- one of the new churches the uh, church at Colossae because I think it's got a lot to say as all of Paul's letters do to churches today. Colossae, if you pronounce it like Colossae, wasn't a big place. Um, We know it was a very multicultural city. There were lots of uh, Greek and Jewish people living there. It was about 10 miles from Laodicea, which you might have heard of. There's another letter in the New Testament written to the church at Laodicea. Um, And it's about 100 miles from Ephesus, All of these places are in what is today Turkey. We've got no idea whether the church was big or small, but it seems to be quite a new church. So I'm kind of guessing it was a bit smaller maybe than this one, but bigger than our church, Blasto Christian Fellowship. We're only a couple of dozen on a a Sunday. And Epaphras, the man in the passage who told Paul about the church at Colossae, was probably its founder. And it seems the church was going well. Paul wasn't writing to them to tell them off uh, because they'd gone wrong. Instead, he wanted to make sure they were continuing to go well and they didn't go wrong in the future. There's some false teaching around that we read about later in the letter and Paul wants to make sure the Christians at Colossae don't get diverted by it. Paul says that he and his co-workers always give thanks for the Christians at Colossae. And there's one thing above all in this passage that he gives thanks for. He's not giving thanks because he's heard of their new learning and wisdom. 
Uh, that isn't the crucial first sign of new life in Christ. He doesn't say he's heard about their newfound holiness or their obedience to a moral code. He does want them to lead a new kind of life, but he knows that will come in, in time. But instead, he puts his finger on the one thing that he knows always emerges when a real Christian community starts up. The thing which stands out for Paul from the report he's had from Epaphras is in verse 8 of Colossians chapter 1. He says, Epaphras told us of your love in the spirit. It's love. That's the thing which Paul knows is what really marks out a real Christian community. Now, that doesn't just mean that all the Christians had good feelings about each other. They might not have done or they might not. What matters is that the behaviour that marks out so much of what goes on around us, anger, lies, selfishness, greed, the things that divide up families and communities, those things are being replaced in the lives of these new Christians by different things, by kindness, by gentleness, by forgiveness, by acceptance of each other, even when, as in Colossae, the Christians were from very different backgrounds and different cultures. And that was what Paul recognised as the true sign of God at work. And he's excited to hear about the love they have for each other. And alongside love, he can talk about two other striking features of Christian life. The, the famous passage about love in 1 Corinthians 13 that you may well have uh, heard read at a wedding sometime or other, um, ends with these words. These three remain, faith, hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. And that's really the message here, I think, as well. Love is what Paul picks out in verse 8, but in verses 4 and 5, alongside love, he speaks of the faith and the hope of the Colossian Christians as well. Verses 4 to 5, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that's stored up for you in heaven. Faith, love and hope. Faith which reaches out to grasp what God offers in Jesus. Love which binds the community uh, and the Christians together. Hope which looks forward eagerly to the time when God is going to finish what he's begun in Jesus. Paul has heard about all three in the, uh, the church uh, of the Colossians, and he's thanking God over and over for what he's heard. The seed which was planted in uh, Colossae was, we read in verse 5, the word of truth, the gospel. It's not just, actually, it's not just some words, it's got power. In verse 6, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. This wasn't just bringing people a new religious insight or even a new religious experience it's bringing them new creation it's creating new people and almost 2,000 years on it's the same today uh, like me you probably often read newspaper articles which say that church attendance has gone down again and the people who write those articles give the impression that it won't be very long before the Christians have all, all died out and I, I think for some of them, when they write those articles, that's actually what they're hoping is going to uh, happen. But I, I suspect those people who write those articles haven't been to Lifeline Church. 
because the truth is that decline is not what I see happening in the churches around East London. It's the opposite. It's growth that's happening at the, uh, at the moment. Last month, um, Lion Hodder published a book called London, A Spiritual History. And it's written by a Catholic author, Eduardo Albert. And he seemed to me to get this absolutely right. He, re- he writes this towards the end of the book. London, seemingly without anyone noticing, has become over the last 20 years the most religious part of Britain. Church attendance has risen. The percentage of 20-something Londoners going to church, I think there are a few of those here, uh, is almost double that for the rest of, of London. Sorry, for the rest of England. Churches are opening up all over the place, often in new and unexpected places, in cinema complexes, disused industrial units, schools, closed-down shops and houses. And he says, seeing this fills me with hope. The early Christians had to make do with such make-do premises. Watching this happen again suggests that God, yet again, might be pulling one of his bait-and-switch moves on human expectations. And by the way, the Church of England is building its first new churches in London now since the 1950s. They haven't had to build any for about 60 years because they're all getting empty. Now they're filling up again. They've got to build some new ones. And I, I think we are again seeing exactly what Paul wrote to the Colossians. This gospel is bearing fruit and growing. Of course, you know, if you look around elsewhere in Britain, there is decline. There are uh, reductions in, uh, in, in church attendance in, in lots of areas. But I think Eduardo Albert is right again because he goes on to, to write this. Will the country follow London or London follow the rest of the country? History suggests the former. Where London has led, England has generally followed. And I think we are going to see the growth that we can see in London today el- elsewhere across the country um, as well. And that we will be able to say, as Paul did in verse 6, all over the world this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. We've heard this morning about um, seed being being sown in Ukraine and um, the Caribbean uh, um, and Zimbabwe. Um, I was in Bangladesh last month. Now, the previous occasion I was in Bangladesh... Um, I was there with Tear Fund. Tear Fund, you might well know, always works through local churches. Now, in Bangladesh, less than one half of one percent of the population are Christians, and so you know I was presuming that uh, Tear Fund wasn't going to be able to do very much in Bangladesh, but I was I was wrong. We visited a, a place called the Lamb Hospital in northwest. Bangladesh, which is a a lovely, really lovely place. And what we discovered was that in villages around that hospital and in lots of other parts of Bangladesh, there are, in fact, a lot of really tiny local churches where the gospel is bearing fruit and where the community is being served. Tear Fund was doing a huge amount with them. They were supporting the church, uh, supporting the hospital. The hospital was working with, uh, with them. And it was true in Bangladesh as well that, that this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. All over the world, Paul says, and he's right. 
When people become Christians, God implants in them a new sense of his presence and his love, his guiding and his strengthening, and those need to be nurtured and developed. New Christians need to understand what's happening to them and how to cooperate with the presence of God, which has begun to work in them. So Paul doesn't only thank God for the church at Colossae, he prays for the church as well. Verse 9, that God will fill them with the knowledge of his will. Verse 10, that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of the Lord. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power so that you may have great endurance and patience, bearing fruit in every good work. That's what I see happening in, uh, in Lifeline Church with all of your uh, projects bringing good news to this community, good news in the park this afternoon, um, and good news across the country as well. I've uh, worked with uh, Faith Action ever since um, Avril came to tell me about it, which uh, 10 years ago or thereabouts, I, I think. And now I work with, uh, with Daniel, who uh, supports with his uh, team, I must say, I didn't know Rody played the trombone. That's a revelation I've discovered uh, this morning. Um, uh, the team uh, support the work of the all-party parliamentary group on faith and society, which I, I chair. And I think that's an example of the gospel bearing fruit. In the past year, over a million people obtained food from the 400-plus food banks supported by the Trussell Trust around the UK. Every single one of those food banks is based on a church. In quite a short period, mainly because of changes in government policy, hundreds of thousands of people have suddenly found they can't any longer afford enough food for themselves or their families. So who's going to step forward to meet that need in modern Britain? To the surprise, I think, of all the people who write those articles about the churches being on the way out, it's turned out to be the churches. Now, if we'd had a discussion a few years ago about what was going to happen or what would happen in Britain if hundreds of thousands of people had suddenly become unable to afford enough food, I don't think we would have guessed, I'm afraid I would not have predicted, that it was going to be the churches who would have stepped up to meet that need. But that is what has happened. It's turned out in modern Britain that it has been the churches which uniquely have had the motivation and, more surprisingly, perhaps, the resources and the capacity to take on the job. When no one else, it wasn't local councils, it wasn't other organisations, it was the churches who've been able to do it. And, my goodness, have they made a difference. And I think that's a great example of exactly what Paul prays for. Uh, for the, uh, the, the, the Colossian Christians in verse 10, that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please, please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. The Guardian uh, newspaper has a, a columnist, John Harris, who describes himself as an unshakable agnostic. And he went along to a church in Liverpool, which I think is probably a bit like this one, the Frontline Church. Some of you might have uh, come across it. I've been there once. And afterwards, he wrote this. Evangelical worship gets many on the left hostile or awkward. So how do we respond to believers that save the destitute? 
And um, he has a conversation with a, a woman who's a member of uh, that church who'd previously been a, a prostitute and a drug addict for 10 years. And he asked her how the church had helped her. And this is her reply. Because they don't judge me, outside they just look on me as a drug addict. They don't want to help you. They haven't got time. They're too busy with their own lives. Coming here, people give their time and just love me, no matter what I've done. And the unshakable agnostic, John Harris, speaking, I think, for more and more people around Britain, noticing what's going on in churches like this one. He says this, when you see organisations like this church dealing so enthusiastically with social emergencies, it's very difficult to feel sceptical. The gospel bearing fruit, exactly as Paul said to the uh, Colossians. At the end of uh, the, the, the passage that John read, there's, I think, a really powerful description of what happens to people when they become Christians. It says in verses 12 to 14, God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul says, we used to be in the dominion of darkness. We were trapped, we were imprisoned, We couldn't see where we were going or what was happening around us. We were engulfed by darkness. But now we've been rescued from that and brought instead to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the son he loves. And how has that rescue been achieved? It's because he, quoting from the passage, qualified us to share. Another translation puts it, he's made you fit to share. We haven't qualified ourselves He's qualified us. It doesn't reflect any credit on us at all. All the credit for our rescue belongs to the Father. And there's a stark contrast, I think. The dominion of darkness, on the one hand, compared with the kingdom of light, on the other. Dominion of darkness, where darkness prevails. Darkness, or the dominion of darkness, is a kind of impersonal thing. Darkness all around, all enveloping. But the kingdom of light, by contrast, is personal. There is a king. This is a kingdom. It's the kingdom not just of light, but as it says in verse 13, of a person, of the son he loves. And there's a lot of joy in the rescue that has been achieved. Paul prays that the Colossian Christians will be giving joyful thanks to the Father for bringing us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. It's a cause for celebration and for joy that we've been rescued from the dominion of darkness and shifted into the kingdom of light. And one of the themes of this whole letter is Paul's prayer that young Christians will learn how to be thankful. Paul wants to see as a sign of healthy uh, Christian life heading towards maturity, thankfulness to God for the amazing things he's done in Jesus and is continuing to do in the world uh, and in our lives. I think our churches, your church, our church in in Plasto, have a lot in common with this church that Paul wrote to at Colossae. May it be true of this church that it's marked by faith, by hope, and above all, by love.
May this church continue to be bearing fruit, as it certainly seems to me to be doing at the moment, in every good work. And may this church also be giving joyful thanks to the Father, who's rescued us from the dominion of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the Son he loves. Probably, um, you might like to ask Stephen a question. Grand. Okay, I'll start off, but I figured that we may have some questions. Remember, Stephen's been... I mean, you were front bencher for 12 years? 17. 17 years. So, and he's a right honourable as well. So, so we, we have it all here, you know. Um, you can probably explain what that means to them. But, uh, okay, first off, really obvious question. Do politics and faith mix? Um. Well, uh, I obviously think they do, Um, but it is a question that people often wonder about. I mean, my, I mean, I think people sometimes think they don't mix because you can think of so many examples around the world where faith and politics getting mixed up seems to be disastrous because, you know, there's people having wars and, you know... Northern Ireland, uh, around uh, the Middle East, uh, all over the place. Um, But I think the truth is, actually, that uh, faith is a very good starting point for politics because Christian faith is the source of exactly the values that we need to make politics work. And I think it's, it's the kind of the loosening of the values, which is the reason that politics has been in so much trouble um, recently. And we need, to, we need to renew those values, you know, um, responsibility, solidarity, patience, persistence, compassion, truthfulness. And where are those values going to come from in our society? Well, I, you know, I think the reality is it's, it's going to be from the, from the churches. Um, and actually, I think other faith groups have got a part to play here as, as well. I think non-Christian faith groups can contribute too. So, yeah, I think the reason that they do mix or, or, or need, we need them to mix is because faith is the source of, of the values without which politics cannot work. Good. Right, well, that's got us going. So we can take some questions from the floor... I almost want to ask a question of Lynn as well, but I'll, I'll ask her while we see if she wants to answer it. Right, Andy, you can shout it out. But, you know, like, unlike every other event that Stephen and I do, make sure the question's a question. Um, well, we have, we have to do that. Uh, and I, I, I suppose I can just give one uh, example. When I first became an MP, which was in 1994, um, I was approached by a couple of Conservative MPs, who are Christians, with the suggestion that we should pray together um, regularly. And we ended up with a group which can, in, had two 
Conservative MPs, two uh, Labour MPs, me and one other, um, one Lib Dem, and one Ulster, or one Democratic Unionist, you know, is. Uh, so it's six of us, and we uh, met regularly to pray. And we profoundly disagreed about all kinds of political things, but our praying together led to a real friendship which has endured. In many ways, it's a stronger friendship, I think, between the six of us than we might have with people who we agree more with politically. So I, I, I think it's a really good question, and, um, but it, we can do it and, we, and we, need to, we need to do it. The underlying unity that we have in, in Christ transcends political and other differences of opinion. Grant, how about, um, I'm going to take some of these questions, but I'd like to get some questions for the young people. So if you're sitting as a young person, if you can give them a poke, make sure they're awake. It's always best to do that. I'm going to give Stephen an opportunity to give any message he has for young people. If it's an out-and-out recruitment for the Labour Party, we'll spot it. But we'll see if he can slip it by. Avril. Uh, <laughs> have I ever felt like giving up? I don't think I have, no. Um, I mean, there have been some... I've, I've been exhausted at times. Uh, some people might remember I got stabbed a few years ago, uh, which was a fairly grim time. Um, but then I thought, well, what, what on earth else could I do? So... Um, <laughs> So I carried on. <laughs> I, actually, I mean, I've really enjoyed it. It's been a fantastic, you know, it's, I mean, it's, a, great, it's a great job, which I, I, I enjoy doing. That last comment does not get tweeted, all right? <laughs> <laughs> Good. Uh, I saw... Ah, that's right, I saw Victoria. Um, maybe I should just mention, uh, we're talking about prayer, we do have every year a thing called the National Prayer Breakfast, um, when hundreds of people come, lots of MPs come, um, six or seven hundred people there, and it's happening again in June, um, and one of the ideas of it is that people from churches say to their MP, uh, we're coming to this prayer breakfast, will you come and join us? And it's quite effective, actually, at getting MPs to show up, people who, who wouldn't normally dream of going to a prayer breakfast. If their constituents are coming and saying, well, we're going to be there, will you come and join us? And um, they, they get interested. Um, I suppose, you know, obviously there is a, a, a need for real wisdom at the moment. Um, we've got this... Uh, European referendum campaign. We've got three months of this. Uh, and that's, I think, a really big decision. And all of us as MPs are going to be involved in the debate and arguing, um, I shall be arguing that we should stay in Europe. I know others uh, will be arguing the opposite. Um, I think it's right to pray that the country gets that decision right. Um, and I think... For us as individual MPs, 
that we kind of, you know, we've got the, uh, I suppose that we've got the wisdom to know what we should be doing, uh, because there's, there's so many things you could be doing as an MP. You could be campaigning for this or that, or you could be going somewhere, you could be meeting this person. And there's, there's huge, huge choices to make. And I'd be grateful, certainly for me, if people would pray that, you know, I know which are the right ones amongst all those choices. A younger person, someone like me or, you know, slightly younger. Go on in. Well, that's a good question. I remember when I arrived in uh, East Ham in about 1979, 1978, um, and I decided I was going to join the Labour Party. I hadn't done any politics at all as a student. It was just when I left college and arrived in London, I thought I would. Um, and I thought, well, I'd spent all my time at university in the CU. Uh, even then... Uh, Newham was a pretty multi-faith kind of place and I thought I'd, I'd be a bit sort of frowned upon in a way because I was obviously tied up with one faith instead of the others. Um, but I discovered I was mistaken about that and the thing that when um, the reason I became the MP in 1994 was because my predecessor, a chap called Ron Layton, had a heart attack and died and suddenly we were uh, needing someone else to be the MP. And the first person who came to see me to say, we think you should go for this job, was the chair of the Alliance of New and Muslim Associations. And his argument to me was, you believe in God, we believe in God, we think you should go for this job. Um, and... I think, actually, it's true for Muslims, it's true for other, for Hindus, Sikhs, um, that very often those communities feel much more comfortable with a person of faith, even if it's of a different faith, than of somebody who's got no faith at all. And I say that uh, Mr. Dean was his name, uh, he was the first person to come and see me, urging me to go for the job. In fact, he was the only person who came to see me to uh, <laughs> urge me to go for the job. So, I, you know, I, I feel very um, indebted to him and grateful to him. Um, and, um, you know, if he hadn't done that, I probably wouldn't be the MP. Okay, great. Well, I'll take a couple, another couple of questions. The question I want to throw for them to consider if she wants to speak, because she's, she wasn't prepared for this, was I'm kind of interested in hearing for the people that are kind of alongside someone who's in the limelight or the kind of th what kind of journeys and, and tips you've picked up because a lot of us, not all of us, get to be the person who's elected or the person who's on the stage or those kind of things, but many of us get the opportunity to support those. So I'd be interested in any lessons you've learned. And, of course, Stephen can say the ways he's supported you because from hearing about the coffee shop, I realise there's one person who can organise an MP and that would be... The MP's wife, in a sense, because you were corrected a number of times on your accounts of things. So, um, has been known. Has been known. <laughs> so, uh, another couple of questions from this side, the quiet side. No, no, 
No. Maybe the slightly asleep side. No. All satisfied. It's like our conference here. There's one there. There's one. Oh, right, Julian. Yes, well, what happened was um, <clears throat> I do regular constituency surgeries and people have to make an appointment to come to one of my surgeries. They, just, you know, they ring up and we give them a time when they can come. And sometimes we ask them uh, what it is they want to talk to me about. And, and this particular person, uh, a young woman, a student at King's College, Bangladeshi background, she said she wanted to come and talk to me about an employment matter so she came to the surgery, um, and uh, she was in very Bangladeshi dress, very kind of quite heavily Islamic dress, and she came up to me. I was sitting behind a, a, a table, um, and it looked as though she wanted to come and shake my hand, which I thought was a bit surprising, because somebody dressed like that wouldn't normally be wanting to shake uh, a man's hand, but she was sort of coming towards me with a, with a hand out. It turned out she didn't want to shake my hand. She wanted to stick a knife in me, um, uh, which she did twice. Um, and um, I, uh, fortunately, I had with me uh, an assistant who knew what you have to do to get a knife out of a person's hand. So he was able to grapple with her, and he got the knife out of the hand. And she waited quietly until the police came along. Uh, half an hour later, I was rushed off to hospital, and they told me that I had a life-threatening, but not imminently life-threatening injury. So they were able to... <laughs> Must be very reassuring. Yeah, yeah. So uh, they were able to patch me up, and um, I'm, I'm now fine. It turned out, actually, um, uh, her name was Rushnara. She, uh, Rushnara Chowdhury, she had two... She'd planned it all fairly carefully. She'd bought a couple of knives two weeks previously in order to do this. One big knife and one small knife. And at the last minute, she decided she couldn't hide the big knife up her sleeve, so she stuck with the small knife, which is probably why I'm here, I guess. Um, and she's now serving a long prison sentence. Um, forgiveness. I, I've been asked about this quite a lot. Have I forgiven her? And I... I'm in a bit of difficulty. I don't, th I don't think I bear any particular malice to her. In fact, I would have liked to have gone to see her, just to have a talk to her about what it was all about. But, um, and the police originally thought that was a good idea, but then they came back to me and said, no, we don't think it's a good idea. And I, I think that's because uh, the, their assessment is that she doesn't really have any regrets about the whole thing, and so they think um, I, it wouldn't be a good idea to go and speak to her. I'm not sure they're right, but anyway, I've, I've taken their advice. Um, have I forgiven her? I, it seems to me forgiving somebody requires some sort of interaction between... I'm not sure... I, I could sit here and say, yes, I've forgiven her, but I'm not sure that would mean anything. What I'd love is to have a conversation with her, um, and I, I, th I think I would then be able to make it clear that, that I had forgiven her. But without some kind of interaction, I, I don't think that really means anything. So... But I don't think I bear her any ill will. Right. Thank you. Ah, oh, good. A hurry of questions. Right. Hannah, Josiah, and Ben. We'll take, we'll take three at once. Hannah. Um, I think you said in part how you came into politics. 
terms of do we want to see more Christians in politics? Should we be praying for a release of more Christians into politics, or should we ourselves be stepping into that? Good, Josiah. Why did she? Good, right, okay. Okay. Right. Good. And Ben. Um, to what degree does your faith influence the decisions that you make? Um, and how open can you be about that decision being faith-led? Okay. That's a good question. Yeah. Tim Farron has been particularly grilled on that one. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'd certainly love to see more... Christians getting involved in politics. Actually, I think there are a fair number now. I think the number is going up. Um, all, they're, they're, in the Labour Party, we've got a thing called Christians on the Left. There's a Conservative Christian Fellowship. There is a Liberal Democrat Christian Forum. And they've all come together to create an organisation called Christians in Politics. Uh, and they've started, that organisation has started a, a what they call a show-up campaign, where the, the point they're making is that Basically, politics is shaped by the people who show up. And, you know, very often, Christians completely understandably complain about what goes on in politics, but then they're not there. So, and, and I think a lot of, in the past, a lot of Christians kind of pulled out and gave up on politics and kind of feeling it was such a dreadful thing. They didn't want any, any involvement in it. But then if we do that, we can't, we're not entitled to complain about the result because we, we've vacated it. So I'd, I'd love to see more Christians involved. I think the show-up campaign is absolutely right. And I suppose the thing that I would most ask the church to pray for is for Christians who are in politics. I um, have been hugely supported by my church, which never said to me, oh, you shouldn't be involved in such a nasty thing. But what they said instead was, we want to pray for you. And, and, and that's made a huge difference. And I, I don't know whether there are people here who are involved in politics. There certainly are Christians in uh, Barking Dagenham who are involved in politics. And I think it would be great for the church to pray for them and to, 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 for them to know that they've got the support in prayer of, of the church. And any young people who are interested... I'd really encourage them to go for it because um, it, I, yeah, I think it's a, a, a great thing to, to do. Um, Link. Ah, my politics school, yes. Uh, Ling, Ling has reminded me, yes. Um, so um, once or twice a year, I run a politics school for young people, 16, 17 when we have uh, a dozen or so young people who come to, um, uh, to Westminster for a week um, and we just kind of show them around, take them to the BBC, take them to a journalist and, 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 and they meet MPs and people who work for MPs. Um, that is, however, for residents of Newham, I should make that clear. Um, but, uh, but, you know, it's the kind of thing that perhaps local MPs here could be encouraged to do as well. There are a, a growing number of MPs who are doing that. Why did Roshnara Chowdhury stab me? It was because I voted in favour in 2003 of military action in Iraq. If you might remember, we had a, a war in Iraq which started in 2003, and I was one of those who voted in favour. She, strongly, as many, many people in my constituency did, disagreed with that, and that was, she told the police that was the reason she'd done it. She actually had a list with her, I think, of other MPs who voted in the same way as me. With a, so there was a sort of suggestion she might have 
gone around stabbing a few others if she had the chance, but anyway, she didn't get anywhere beyond me. Um, and how does... Uh, well, I, I think... How do you kind of take a, a faith view um, in Parliament? I mean, we've had a fantastic opportunity to do that this week, actually, about Sunday trading. And we managed to defeat the government on it as well, which I was absolutely thrilled about. It doesn't happen very often, um, I'm afraid, but it did happen this week. And that, and that was a fantastic coming together, basically, of the churches and the trade unions, who said, enough is enough. People are working in big shops, have a hard enough life as it is, and having to work on Sunday as well, without any kind of day off, proper day off. Um, and so, um, you know, there were people, and I, I, I still haven't made a brief comment about it in the, the Commons, because what the, the briefing that came from the Shop Workers Union, USDOR, they gave us lots of quotes from their members about what this would do to them if they had to work on Sunday like every other day. And one of the quotes was from somebody saying, well, I wouldn't be able to go to church if I have to um, work uh, as normal on a, on a Sunday. And I drew attention to that. So, I mean, what I don't think you can do is stand up in the House of Commons and say, the Bible says X, Y, Z, therefore we've got to do that. Because that, that does not persuade people. So I, we, I think we do have to make our arguments in a way that people who are not believers can relate to, but we can certainly take inspiration from uh, what the Bible says, what we believe as, as Christians, and um, I, you know, I think that is absolutely the right thing to do. Okay, right. I think our time has come to a close there because the kids are starting to gather we will i will get the answer from lynn over dinner about her tips about supporting and dealing with mps and uh, i shall make good use of those but thank you very much thank Steve. you thank you thank you all thank you